Hello, my name's David Yarrow. Welcome to my podcast, In Focus. Over the last few years, I've traveled fairly relentlessly around the world, following my passion of photography. These are the stories behind the photographs. In this episode, I'm going to talk about my efforts to photograph polar bears over the last 10 years. They remind me that success is 99% failure because I've had a lot of failure in trying to photograph this most magnificent but very dangerous animal. I've probably taken three strong polar bear pictures. One picture which sold very well at Sotheby's 78 degrees north, which unusually for me is with the polar bear going away from me. And then Diamonds in the Sky and Hello, which were both taken on the north slope of Alaska. Alaska, Canada, Greenland, Norway, or Spitsbergen, which is right at the north of the archipelago, the north of Norway, and Russia. Those are the five countries that you're going to go to if you want to photograph polar bears. I haven't done Russia. There are two places in Russia that people go to to photograph polar bears. One's Wrangell Island, which is very difficult to access. You need a helicopter and a lot of permit passes. And you have to be careful because you're kind of on your own up there. And there are a lot of polar bears and there's no hotels. Then there's a place called Frank Joseph Island, which do have some people living there. Again, it's a long, old way to go. So Russia's not been on my map yet. I would like to go, and if I went, it would be to Wrangell Island. Let's then look at one other place that people go to a lot, which is Churchill in Manitoba in Canada. This is probably the polar bear capital of the world. And rather bizarrely, the polar bears congregate in this place called Churchill, which is really only accessible by flight or by train from Winnipeg in Manitoba. And Churchill is where you do see a lot of polar bears congregating, waiting for the ice on the Hudson to freeze, which tends to freeze later and later every year. Now it's freezing so late that the prime season for the congregation is around Halloween. And there was a rather wonderful documentary done of people trick-and-treating, and they're going around the corners of the small town, and then they meet a polar bear, which uh, I think brings a whole new side to Halloween horror experiences. So around the last week of October, first two weeks of November, you will get a lot of polar bears there. The problem is that security is very tight, and in order to photograph them, you're going to be in a buggy. But it's not kind of your normal buggy that kids go around in the living room with. These are the world's biggest buggies, and you're effectively about nine foot in the air for obvious reasons, so the polar bear can't get you in the buggy. But that nine foot in the air causes problems in perspective, because if, if you're photographing a polar bear that's very close, you're going to be looking down on the polar bear. The only way that you can mitigate that issue is by using a long lens, which therefore also reduces your sense of intimacy and immersion. You've also got a lot of 18, 19-year-old people on internship that are working for the authorities up there, just throwing authority around. 
they have an overflated sense of their own importance and their own understanding of polar bear behavior, but they do carry with them the card of authority, which can be quite frustrating. So you do find yourself being dictated to by people that have barely left college. And then because it is known as being the place in America that's easy to access polar bears, you get a lot of cameramen. I'm often asked what my favorite places to photograph are, and I say, well, the places where there aren't other cameramen. If you've got one big polar bear walking through the tundra and there's 40 other photographers with long lenses, well, that's not art. It's not unique, it's not authentic, it's pole. I've been there once, won't go back. You do occasionally, if you take a six-hour journey in the buggy, you get to a spit of land on a place called Cape Churchill where the wind can be ferocious. And I remember going there once. You go out on a train of buggies in this most desolate place and you arrive at your destination on this spit of land with floodlights and you can see polar bears all around. It's the most surreal experience and they're big. They are big old polar bears. If for whatever reason you have to get out, you could be in trouble. And yet the people running these trips, they have to get out to decouple the carriages and put them all on their own generators and prepare things or whatever. It's a very unusual way to spend $20,000. I don't think I'll be doing that again because even although you can get some fairly interesting pictures, and I have seen some good pictures from out there, they are all taken from nine foot up. I tried to persuade them that I could dangle on a rope, a camera onto the ground and then use remote control, but they were having none of it. And then I tried to do it anyway, <laughs> without them seeing. There's the air of sort of dictatorial authority that I don't like there. You're left with precious little tools with which to do your job. So let's forget about Churchill. You then move on to the place that so many people go to, which is Svalbard in uh, Norway. Once every two years, I take 12 people on a little tug from Malmo in Sweden for the price of, I think, $20,000 or something like that. I lead them around the archipelago with very good Swedish sailors and guides who know the ice flow. This will be normally in May and June when the ice is beginning to break up around there. And there are probably around about two and a half thousand polar bears in Svalbard. So around about 7% of the global population. And you think two and a half thousand is a lot. Spitsbergen, whilst it might look small on a map, is a lot of sea to cover. And I've been up there once for a week with my two children and they were so excited and we only saw one polar bear from 200, 300 yards away right on the final day, which was so disappointing. So I've been up there five times. First time, I saw three polar bears. Second time, I saw one. Third time, I saw 11. And the fourth time, I saw nine. So if you do a weighted average of that, it's about a polar bear a day when you're at sea. The reason people go up there is if you can get a polar bear against a retreating glacier, you've got that layered narrative. You've got the two stories rolled into one. You've also got the most northerly town in the world, which is an old Russian mining town. Bizarrely, 
There are parts of this archipelago that are still Russian, and there are two mining villages there. I did manage to get a polar bear in front of the most northerly town in the world, and of course, that's exactly the kind of complementary imagery you're looking for. Industrial landscape, 1940 industrial landscape with the polar bear in the foreground. I came back from that trip and I thought, that's a big image, but we haven't sold one. You have to fly to Oslo, and then from Oslo, you either fly to Tromsø or you fly to Longyearbyen, which is the capital of Svalbard. It's a home to two and a half thousand people and is generally regarded as being the most northerly town in the world because the other place I mentioned is abandoned, save for four people. But Longbjörny has whiskey bars and restaurants and people go up there for adventures. It's not as cold as it used to be, and it's a, a very surreal, kind of haunting and sad place. But in those 60 hours from leaving Longyearbyen in Swedish tugs, I've had one picture, which was a 15-minute experience. But those 15 minutes have made up for the 49 days and 23 hours and 45 minutes where I didn't get anything. My 15 minutes with the polar bear, which was at around about 78 degrees north, which is why we called the picture 78 degrees north, the polar bear is moving away from me, which all other things being equal, you'd say, well, that's not going to make a very good picture. And my definitive style is an animal coming right towards me so you can see its eyes and you got that sense of foreboding and menace. But luckily, the polar bear was walking away up a hill and all you had behind was a white backdrop of snow and mountains. And he just lifted his back paw. So all you can see is his back paw. And it looks a little bit like a, a Nike ad with that swoosh. That's the way their paws are. And there was something about it that I knew that that was going to be an incredibly evocative picture because it said different things to different people. It was a message of solitude, the extraordinary biodiversity of our planet, the fact that him and I would never see each other again. For some, it was a Nike advert. Fine art photography is about that glimpse, that one moment in time that makes something very, very special. And that happened to me in Svalbard. So we covered three of the countries. Greenland is tough. Greenland, they know more about polar bears in Greenland than anywhere else. They're still allowed to hunt polar bears in Greenland, which I actually agree with, because the people that are allowed to hunt them are indigenous Greenland communities that are hunting villages of two or 3,000 that are scattered around the east coast and the west coast of Greenland. And they're given a quota of polar bears every year, which is sometimes between 20 and 30, that they're allowed to kill. They use the meat and then they sell the fur. And it is their way of life. And because once they get to their quota, that's it. And in the meantime, polar bears are very heavily protected in Greenland. The polar bear population is going up. It's not going down. And the Greenland government take great pride in their management of those numbers. When you go out with a hunting community to see a polar bear being killed, it is one of the most bizarre spectacles that I've ever seen in the world. Don't get the idea that it's a sniper going for the polar bear from a long way off because that seemed to be cruel in case the sniper misses or gets a part of the polar bear's body or head that doesn't kill it. So what they do is they go out with dog teams and the lead dog is half dog, half wolf, and they'll unleash the first dog on a sleigh, they're on a sleigh behind. And that first dog, half dog, half wolf, will go and attack the polar bear. 
The others aren't up to it, but each dog team has the lead dog as being half dog, half wolf. And once the half dog, half wolf has nipped the polar bear, the other nine dogs, which are 100% dog and no wolf, will then form a carousel around the polar bear and basically exhaust it because the polar bear can't take on nine of these dogs at the same time. And then when the polar bear is exhausted, the hunter will come in and shoot the polar bear from about 20 yards. It is one of the most surreal things I've ever seen in my life because it's almost like a medieval dance. And that practice of killing polar bears has been going on in Greenland for generations. It's a tough place to photograph them because the hunters don't want that practice to be photographed itself. So I went out on a couple of hunting expeditions. When that moment comes with the polar bear, you're asked to leave. They don't want the outside world to see or to document what goes on. If you Google that particular activity or method of hunting on the internet, you won't see an awful lot of it. I remember there was one occasion when I was in this place on the east coast of Greenland and I went out with a guide who was very conversant on, on the area and the dangers and where polar bears were. And he forgot his rifle, which you always need. And he said, listen, I'll be quicker if I just leave the two of you here in this ice floe in the fjord and I'll go and get the rifle. And then his snowmobile ran out of petrol on the way back. And we were left stranded in this fjord, this polar bear territory, on our own with no gun. And walking back that one and a half hours through the ice, that was a nervous experience. I've never been so pleased to get back to the village because there are a lot of polar bears around there. So we've done Greenland, we've done Canada. We've done Russia. Well, I've talked about the difficulties of Russia, and we've done Spitsberg and Svalbard, which gets us to the place that we've discovered is our El Dorado. It's the place that's meant for us in terms of photographing polar bears. There's a wonderful story about Thomas Edison when he failed yet again to create permanent light, and there was a press conference, and some journalist said, Mr. Edison, you failed to create permanent light for the 98th time. It seems like over the last 10 years, you've learned nothing. And he said, on the contrary, young man, I've learned 98 ways in which not to create permanent light. So I've learned a hell of a lot. And in the same way, we'd learned so much about how not to photograph polar bears, either because our trajectory of the camera was too high, the angle looking down was wrong, or just logistically, or just the fact that in the area we're looking at, the landmass was too big for those two and a half thousand polar bears. But we got to find a place near Prudhoe Bay in Alaska. Prudhoe Bay is where the big oil refinery is, the BP Alcoa, right at the north of Alaska. It is, without a shadow of a doubt, the most untamed, untouched part of the Americas. You go over the Brooks Mountain Range from Fairbanks, Alaska, and then you really are at the top of the world. There's a couple of places there. They're, they're traditional, what used to be called Eskimos. And of course, we don't call anyone Eskimos any longer. Or if they're given a name, they're called Inuit. But maybe indigenous, the indigenous communities of the North Slope of Alaska is probably the right terminology these days. The biggest community is a place called Barrow. And then Prudhoe Bay, which is dominated by oil workers that come from all around America. And then about 50 miles east of Prudhoe Bay is a village called Kaktovik. And that is polar bear heaven. And every year, more and more polar bears descend on Kaktovik at the time where that village, which is a hunting village again, are allowed to bring in two whales. 
the whales come in, depending on the weather, probably the second and third week of September. And then they leave the whale carcasses in a, what's called the whale graveyard. And the polar bears are no idiots, and they come from miles around to feed off the carcasses of the two whales that are brought in. When you arrive there, I stayed in a little porter cabin. And bear in mind, I've been used to seeing in places like Spitsburg and Svalbard one polar bear a day. So in the middle of the night, I looked through this little hole in my container, because I think I was living in a Merce container, I think, at the time. And there was a little slit. And I think I could see 15 polar bears just from my container <laughs> that I was sleeping in. So I thought, this has got to be the place. We've got to know the main guy there. And he runs the licenses. There's about five or six licenses for people that can take photographers or tourists out to see the polar bears either on land or on the little sandbanks around within about 400 yards of the mainland. And this is where, in September and October, there are a huge number of polar bears. It went last in 2018, and I think we probably saw about 60. The benefits of this area, once you get there, is you can get very close. Because there's never really been a known incident of a polar bear getting onto a boat. To jump onto a boat is not an easy thing for a polar bear to do. And I've got within about two feet of a polar bear. And he was just staring into my eyes. And I've got my camera out. My heart's going fairly quickly. So that picture we called Hello. If a polar bear is five or six years old, he's still got a mentality that puts the balance in favor of investigation. If it's a big old adult male and he knows he can't get you because of the way that you're positioned, he might not show much interest at all, unless you're covered in chocolate. With the hello picture, the mother is in the background. You can see the mother in the background. So it's rather like a kind of errant child going off to investigate, explore, have fun. And I was very, very close. We, we've got it on film, thankfully. We had a film guy behind me and I don't think it's more than three, three and a half foot. And I wanted to get the head straight on. The head had to be straight on at me. The picture is lost if he's looking at anything other than me because in that picture, I took a selfie of myself in the polar bear's eyes. You can see me in his eyes. And I think that was probably a bit of a first. We had one lovely moment two years ago where it was a beautiful morning. And if you've got a low sun at 10 o'clock in the morning, not a cloud in the sky up there, it's quite unusual to have not a cloud in the sky up there. And there's a polar bear swimming between the whale graveyard and the spit where they like to sort of sleep after eating. And that's about a 300-yard swim. Our little boat is right in front of him. And I managed to get very, very low just at the time that his head came up from the water and he gave his head a big old shake. And that picture of diamonds in the skies has been a, another big winner. There is something visceral about working in the cold with an animal that's been made for the cold. An animal that has fortitude, an animal that is incredibly intelligent and resourceful living their lives at a time where their planet and their habitat is warming in a way that they probably don't want. They haven't been asked, but you can understand why they probably don't want it like that, that they are incredibly resourceful. And they're dangerous. Polar bears, if they're hungry, 
they will see you as an opportunity, something to eat. And they are big, and you're not going to last at all long with the gangster polar bear if you haven't got a gun. The encounters with them are special. They're not easy to photograph well. They're not easy to photograph in a way that's fine art. And I recognize that, which is a good starting point, because if you felt that you could just have an encounter with a polar bear, take a picture, and that's fine art. No, it's not. You need something much more than that. And we tend to go for proximity if we can. So you've got to be patient, resourceful. Got to put up with the cold. But a big adult polar bear is something to behold. And I never tire of seeing them. The North Slope of Alaska is not on most people's bucket list. But I'm a creature of habit. And now that we've got the place that we like, we don't really need to worry about anywhere else. We have a laugh up there now because we know quite a few of the characters. And we also know that the flights are so tricky there. We once got marooned in Prudhoe Bay. And Prudhoe Bay Airport is one of the most bizarre airports in the world because you've got a place that's effectively a male-dominated temporary village for oil workers where people are coming from all around America to work for a three-week stint in the toughest place to drill for oil in the world. And once a week, a big Air Alaska A330 lands into Prudhoe Bay and takes the oil workers back to Anchorage, from which point they'll then go on to all around America, as far south as Arizona, Texas, whatever. But because Prudhoe Bay is part of an indigenous American reserve, as all these villages are, alcohol has been banned. So you have these oil workers that have been earning probably around $3,500 a week. So they are going home with the best part of $15,000 in their pocket to their families, and they haven't had a drink. And then you get bumped, because your flight's been cancelled, you get bumped onto the last two seats. It's very funny. It was, it's the only time where I've been on a two-hour flight and the cabin staff with the drinks trolley didn't get past row six because everyone's just not had a drink for three weeks and they got $15,000. And if you're back sitting in row 30, you're not going to get a drink. So in all my time of photographing polar bears, I've taken three pictures. And that would probably be yeah, about 100 days getting there, traveling, coming back. Maybe, maybe 90. So one picture every 30 days. I look back at that picture, hello, and it was a very short encounter. And we go back thinking, what will it take for other people who are not there, where it doesn't mean quite so much to them, to put a picture of an animal that they've never met personally on their wall? And the answer is always, it's going to take an awful lot. But that doesn't mean it's not attainable. And that's our crusade, if you like. So that's it for this episode of my podcast. My name's David Yarrow. If you haven't already subscribed to the In Focus podcast, please do. And please also leave any reviews that you'd like to make. If you want to see any of the photographs that we've been talking about, do look online at David Yarrow Photography. This is a co-production between the team of David Yarrow Photography led by Alex Ames and Message Heard. Produced by Jake Warren and Sandra Ferrari with mixing, editing and original theme music by Matt Huxley. Thank you again for listening and until next time. <laughs>